Good evening. I wanted to make sure and bring my phone in case Dr. Black called again during the class. Um, while we're thinking about audit courses, let me remind you or maybe tell you for the first time in the spring semester, there's one on Thursday evening from 6 to 845. That's New Testament theology. It's only $50 since you go to this congregation. Otherwise, it would be, I, I can't even tell you how much it would be. It's so, you know, you'd be shocked. So anyway, it's $50. That's the one I'm teaching, yes. There's probably others, but I only, you know, my little brain, I just try to keep up with the ones I'm teaching. And so I'm teaching that one on Thursday evening, 6 to 845, New Testament Theology. Yep. Starting the week of the 20th or 21st, MLK week. Yep. All right, so let's uh, look at Colossians. We're at the end of chapter 3. And so we were just finishing last week uh, a, thing that, a, a section where Paul was emphasizing the importance of um, love and the peace of Christ and the Word of Christ dwelling in our hearts. And... Um, Joyfulness, thank, thank, um, well, thanksgiving in our hearts, thankfulness in our hearts. Yeah, at the end of verse 16, verse 17, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. And most of the time in Paul, uh, our thanks is directed to the Father, and it's through Jesus Christ. That's the way Paul expressed it most of the time. And um, that's just really important because it's, it's easy for us, um, you know, because of the problems everyone has in this world, to be dragged away from a thankful heart and focus on our problems, focus on what we don't like in the circumstances around us or the circumstances in which we find ourselves. Um, but it's important to remember that, um, you know, Paul spent a lot of his time in jail you know, part of the culture of Paul's life, he was, he was a criminal. That's why you go to jail as you're a criminal. And he talks about being uh, in prison many times. He mentions that in 2 Corinthians 11. And a group of his letters are called the prison epistles because he mentions in those epistles that he's in chains or he's in jail. Um, and, and anyway, so even in those letters... Right? He talks about thankfulness and joy and things like that. And, and uh, I'm really sure Roman prisons uh, were not the greatest place to be. And um, uh, in the course I'm teaching right now, uh, which is second, the book we're looking at is Second Timothy in that course. You know, it's Paul's last letter, and he talks about all the Christians who betrayed him, you know, who've gone back into the world. And so he's got all those kind of things that could really upset you and discourage you and think your life has been an exercise in futility and to be discouraged about your whole life. But even in those kind of letters, Paul is all about joy as a Christian. Um, and it's interesting, if you know Christians in developing nations where they have a lot less material resources that, than we have, they seem to have more joy than we have if you know those people from those countries. The ones I know from developing nations where they have a lot fewer resources than we have, um, they have, seem to have more joy. And so I think there's probably a correlation there. But just, you know, we all need to be encouraged and, and guided and maybe admonished by what Paul has to say here uh, about giving thanks and having thankfulness in our hearts. Then in verse 18, he goes to this section, which is called a household code, is what scholars call this. And there's one that's a much larger version of it in Ephesians. As you know, Ephesians has some parallel sections to Colossians. And it's a larger book, and so typically, if it is parallel material, the treatment in Ephesians is larger. And these household codes uh, focus on three sets of relationships. It's husband and wife, okay, that relationship, because 
The three relationships are those that existed in a Roman household. And so it would be a husband and a wife. It would be parents and children. And it would be masters and slaves. Those are the three sets of relationships that tended to exist in a Roman household. Now, not everybody who's getting this letter was a slave owner. Sometimes they were the slave. Because as we know, there were Christian slave owners and there were also Christian slaves. Sometimes the Christian is the husband. Sometimes the Christian is the wife. Sometimes the Christian is the parent. Sometimes the Christian is the child. And child doesn't necessarily mean 18 and younger. It can also be an adult child because in those days, children stayed in their parents' home. Well, of course, we do that now, too. A lot past uh, the age of 18. But anyway, that's why those three relationships are in this section called household code, is that's sort of how the ancient Roman households were packaged, okay, those three sets. And um, ancient um, philosophers and um, ethicists who talked about sort of how people should live and how civilization should work also talked about these kinds of relationships because they knew that if the household didn't function with some sense of order, then cities couldn't work. And if cities couldn't work, then the larger unit, maybe a province of the Roman Empire, couldn't work or a state couldn't work. And so ancient people understood, I think sometimes better than we understand, that if the home is not functioning in a healthy fashion, you're going to have really corrosive consequences of that on society at large. Okay, Really corrosive impact from that on society. And so that's why they talked about this kind of stuff. And that's why Paul talks about it. So the first one is, uh, if you look at verse 18, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. And again, if you know Ephesians, it's a much larger treatment than this. This is just very, very brief. Um, Paul says to the wives, be sub in submission, as is fitting. And of course, he doesn't say what that is. Uh, he, he knows that they will know what fitting is in their own cultural context. And um, even in the ancient world, uh, the understanding of this could vary from culture to culture. And certainly there are differences from ancient times to modern times. If you remember from 1 Peter 3, where a similar conversation is going on, and Peter is praising Sarah. Um, and one of the reasons he, he praises Sarah is for calling Abraham Lord. I don't think most people who advocate, you know, submissive wives, what do you want to bring that on the table of, you know, wives needing to call their husbands Lord or even Sir. I don't even try Sir. <laughs> if I did, it'd only be once. <laughs> okay. Um, now, I think what Paul is trying to do here is to have... Um, so in, in Roman society... You have these three paired relationships, and typically in the culture, the husbands hold most of the power, and the parents hold most of the power, and the masters hold most of the power. Okay? And the wives don't hold much, and the children don't hold much, and the slaves don't. Okay? And what I think he's trying to do here is to make it uh, not that there's no longer submission. He's not abandoning submission or submissiveness, but he's trying to show that both sides have a, a responsibility, okay, because in the ancient sort of social patterns, the way that it worked was one side had all the power and the other side had all the duties and responsibilities, and Paul is trying to show that both sides have duties and responsibilities to each other, and so he says, wives, your side is to submit to your husbands, but husbands... Right? He doesn't say you just get to receive your wife's submissiveness. He says you have to, your sort of contribution to this is you have to love your wives and not be harsh with them. In children, you have to obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. 
And of course, this goes back. He doesn't quote it here like he does in Ephesians 6, where Paul actually quotes the Ten Commandments. Remember, one of the, one of the ten of the Ten Commandments is honor your father and mother, honor your parents. Um, so here he says, children, obey your parents and everything. For this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. So once again, the children have this uh, responsibility of obedience, of submissiveness, and it's, but it's not just one way, right? There's responsibility on the parent side. Here it's on the father's side not to provoke the children. Slaves in the ancient world were basically property. Okay, that's what made you a slave. You were a piece of property. Let me say something about uh, sort of ancient slavery and the American practice of slavery during our period, the colonial period and afterwards, up to the Civil War. Because people make sometimes really sort of uh, too quick a comparison between ancient slavery and sort of American slavery. Because there were differences. I mean, they both uh, were slavery in the sense that the master owned the person. But there are levels at which slavery worked. I just want to point out some of those. Um, in the southern states, in the Confederate states, um, a lot higher percentage of the population, of, I mean, the, the blacks who were slaves, were a much larger percent of the population than in the Roman world. Uh, historians, ancient historians, think that about a third of the general population were slaves. Um, in most of the Confederate states, the rate was almost 50%. Okay? It was almost 50% of the population was in slavery. Um, if you know the Old Testament treatment of slaves, and of course Paul did, and as I tell my students, uh, as I harp on this, as I nag them about this, so you're going to get a little bit of this too. If you want to understand Paul and Jesus and the apostles, and what they teach, that will be enhanced, your ability to do that, if you actually read the same Bible they read. So you know where they're coming from. And of course, they weren't reading the New Testament. That's sort of a shock, right? But the apostles and Jesus, right? They're not reading the New Testament. They're reading the Old Testament. That's the Bible. That's supposed to be in our Bible, in practice. And so the Old Testament has some things about slavery, and one of them is, is that at the end of seven years, you have to free the slave. Now, of course, that was not the way it was practiced in the American South, anywhere in America when there was slavery. There was not this idea that at the end of seven years, you have to let the slave go free. Okay? And that's, that's the way it was practiced in biblical times. <clears throat> and not only that, because you, you know how corrupt people's hearts are, right? So just imagine you're a slave owner, and you're not wanting to give, give up this property, right? It's an investment. And so the seventh year is coming, and so what you're going to want to do is make it as hard on this person as you can so that the notion of freedom looks really undesirable, right? So you're going to free them on the coldest night of the year, you know, when there's no food for them or anything like that, so that there's no way they can survive in this free state. So the Old Testament says when you free them, guess what? You have to give them food. You have to give them some property. You have to sort of make it where they can actually set up house and get going. Okay? So that freedom is is a uh, desirable goal if that's what they want to do. On the other hand, it says, if the person says, you know, this arrangement's not all bad, right? I belong to the master, but on the other hand, I know where I'm going to be sleeping every night the rest of my life, and I know where my meals are coming from, and I haven't lived in the United States of America yet, and I haven't heard about Western democracy. You know, and, and the value of freedom, it's not so bad to have a guaranteed place to live. And so, Moses says, if the slave says, and besides they may love, you know, their family and that owns them, if they say, no, I want to stay here, 
then Moses says, okay, but it's permanent. You can't say after the next seven years, well, I think I'll, I'll be free. It's just you get one opportunity after seven years, and then that's it. And so that's where you then have the ceremony where you put your ear up against the doorpost, and they push the all you know the metal spike through the door through your ear on the doorpost, and that's the ceremony that makes you the permanent property of the master. But there was nothing in American slavery like that, where you gave people the opportunity so that the master in the American system lost their investment, you know the money they had invested in acquiring the slave, that they just lost it after seven years by freeing the slave. Um, I think if, if somebody from the Roman world arrived, you know, and looked at the American slavery system, they would be pretty shocked how brutal it was. I mean, the Roman, you could have brutal slave owners in the Roman system, but um, certainly the Roman system was not based on color. It had nothing to do with color. Um, and unlike the, the experience in, in the American slavery system, in the Roman system, there were people who were slaves who were highly educated. Uh, there were, like in the, in the first and second century AD, uh, we have a couple of philosophers that are really important who were slaves. Uh, one of the chief physicians we know about in the second century AD was a slave. So we have these people who are highly educated, you know, respected in society, but they're slaves. Um, then we have a group of people called freedmen. Okay, there are people who used to be slaves and are now not. Um, because you could purchase your freedom. If you were a slave, you could save some of the money because if you were a slave in ancient times, you could actually earn a little money as a slave and buy your freedom. And... Um, we have evidence of some examples of former slaves, these freedmen in the Roman world who were very wealthy, did very well for themselves, perhaps because of their connections they knew had created when they were slaves of wealthy people. Anyway, it's just a different system. There are places that overlaps. I mean, you were the property. You were the property of the master. And there were masters who were really brutal and harsh and beat their slaves. So I'm not trying to make it look like it's a vacation. But don't think, okay, that the two systems are identical just because we use the word slavery about what happened in the Roman times or in times of, of Moses and the Hebrews. Just because that's called slavery back then. Don't assume that's the same just because, just because we also called it slavery in the American experience. Okay, another example of how you have to be careful about assuming things are the same just because the word used is the word democracy, right? As you know, what we understand democracy to be right now in the United States is pretty different than what it was 200 years ago in America, right? Who was free, who could vote. There were a lot of differences in our understanding of democracy 200 years ago. There's a lot of even more differences in what they understood in Athens, Ancient historians talk about Athenian democracy. That's a whole different galaxy. That's far, far away. But they use the word democracy to talk about it. The ancient people used the word democracy. So it's important to sort of know the substance of what these words talk about. And don't, don't just say, well, Paul is, because he uses the word slaves, and says, you know, obey your masters, he would just automatically be in favor of the American practice. Okay. Um... So verse 22, slaves obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. So just don't do your task as a slave when the master's looking, that kind of thing. Um, but do it really out of fear for God. Clarity, Paul here is writing to slaves who are Christians. Paul does not assume that a non-Christian slave will be reading his epistle. His epistles are for people who are Christians. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, which means that you're, the task you do as a slave, ultimately, the work you do should be because of your relationship to God, 
and not just to fulfill the demands of your uh, earthly master. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. That is, you will receive, as a faithful Christian, if you're a slave, you'll receive a reward, okay? Because you were faithful in the life that you found yourself in. And it could be you were a slave and then became a freedman, okay? Or perhaps you'd stayed a slave your whole life. By the way, if you look at Acts chapter 6, it talks about different kind of Jewish synagogues that existed in Jerusalem. And there's a synagogue. These are not Christian synagogues. These are Jewish synagogues. There's a, a synagogue of Jewish freedmen. So there's actually a synagogue organized around sort of the legal status of people who were former slaves. So there must have been enough of those, you know, former um, Jewish slaves um, so that when they came to Jerusalem, they made up that synagogue. And, because I know you want to know this, you know, in an area called Crimea, which is on the northeastern part of the Black Sea, it's that region where Russia and Ukraine were fighting about, Russia sort of took over, we have inscriptions from first century Jewish synagogues from up there. And sure enough, so a lot of them have to do with, with uh, Jews being liberated from slavery. Um, and in the ancient world, that's called manumission, which is different than emancipation. Okay, they're, Those are sort of cousins to each other, but they're not identical. But in these inscriptions, it talks about the manumission of, of Jews in their synagogues. That's where sort of the ceremony took place and stuff like that. Okay, so uh, knowing that your inheritance is from the Lord and you'll get it as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. So what would Paul have in mind by, by inserting the word partiality? Well, it would be the master versus the slave, because in Roman society, there's a ton of partiality, this culture is partial to which one? The culture is partial to the master, obviously, right? The culture is partial to the master because he has the legal prerogatives. He owns the slave. All the laws are in his favor. Okay? But Paul is reminding the slave that with God there is no partiality. So you, as a slave, you, you serve um, doing it diligently, uh, not as just pleasing men superficially, but you do it because, as he said, you know, he said earlier, back up in um, verse 17, whatever you do in word and deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. That would be just an application of that would be to the life of a slave. All the service you render as a slave, and all the service uh, any of these household relationships have. This, this love a husband has for his wife is in verse 19. Or the obedience that the Christian children have. All of these relationships, okay? These are done because of whatever you do should be done, okay? In the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father. But in terms of, of slavery and, and master and slave, Paul is reminding them God is not partial. You know, God does not, um, when all is said and done, God is not, you know, a creator of these social distinctions. The Old Testament doesn't picture God as creating slavery. The Old, Te Old Testament pictures God creating marriage. It doesn't picture God creating slavery. It pictures God trying to regulate it because it's in all the societies. And so he's trying to regulate it in the Hebrews. The Hebrews came out of the society that was built upon slavery. They had been slaves. But there's no evidence in Scripture that God created the institution of slavery like it was his idea.
talked about, you know, the taking advantage of being sexually remote and how how they respond towards a Christian, you know, following Christ. Okay, um, so the question is, how obedient should Christian slaves be to their, I presume, non-Christian masters, right? Um, it's really clear, if you look at the ancient literature from the time period, that uh, men and women uh, exploited, sexually exploited slaves, okay, in homosexual and heterosexual sexual behavior, uh, <clears throat> and slaves really didn't have much choice about it, um, any more than they did in the American slave system, right? I mean, if, if the slave owner on the plantation sent word that he wanted to have sex with some, you know, 11-year-old girl who was black, what was she going to do? She was going to have sex with the white plantation owner, right? Are you saying yes or no? Yeah, okay. Um, and she's Christian. He claims to be Christian, right? He's not even claiming to be a pagan. You know, The evidence that we have in the ancient world is they're pagan people. And so you obey. You do, you know, what you're told to do. The assumption most Pauline scholars have is that um, when Christian slaves did what they had to do because they were slaves, um, that their fellow Christians regretted that about their life and regretted that they had masters like that, but that they were allowed in church because they, they were viewed as victims, not sort of sexually active in acts of fornication or whatever, or adultery, any more than if a person is raped, Right? If a woman is raped, you don't accuse, I, mean, I don't think we view her as, a, as like we would somebody who's committing adultery or fornicating, right? She's a victim. Okay, so most people think that's what it is. That's how it should be viewed and how it was viewed, say, in the churches of Paul or Peter or John, that this Christian, be it male or female, be it heterosexual or homosexual, sexual abuse, um, that that person was regarded as sort of a victim in, in, by fellow Christians at church, and there was not any uh, stigmatizing of it, like, well, that person can't come into church, or that person can't have the Lord's Supper, or that person needs to repent, or any of those kind of things. But the evidence is pretty clear about that happening. Generally, I mean, um, the Christian population is... Of course, early on, it's pretty small. And it's only in the second century that the culture begins to really, in a widespread way, notice Christians. They, they do notice them in the first century when Nero, when the fire is burning Rome, and, and a large percentage of Rome is burning, and they have to find somebody to blame it on. Then they know about Christians, and so... Um, Christians are sort of a pariah group in Rome, and so Nero's looking for a scapegoat. And so he blames the arson of the fire that burned you know, half the city of the capital on the Christians. So Christians are known in the capital, okay? But they're not, they don't show up in literature as just sort of regular members of society. So most of this evidence I'm, I'm mentioning to you that talks about Sexual abuse comes from the Roman Republic, which would be before the beginnings of Christianity. You know, in the early empire, which would be when Christianity's up and running. But none of that's mentioning Christians per se. We just know about a third of the population's in slavery, and we assume that Christians sort of represent a general demographic slice of the population. So probably about a third of Christians were slaves assuming that the church generally reflected the demography of society. 
We can't prove that. But that's what the assumption is of, of most scholars all over the spectrum. Did that answer your question? Yeah. Yeah. And um, that seems like a reasonable response to me. Uh, you know, I mean, a Christian slave could, you know, refuse and, and I guess pay for it with their life or refuse and just get beat up a lot and then have it happen. You know, like you resist rape and then you get beat up really bad and then get raped. But everybody understands you're the property of the owner. You belong, lock, stock, and barrel, to the owner. You know, the owner owns your body. And there's just an abundant amount of evidence. Uh, and some of, some of the abuse came from women also. Okay. All right. Yeah, these are, these are examples of, of just real ethical issues that are there in the world around Paul, but he doesn't mention them. Um, but we know they had to be there. Yeah. All right. Um, in verse, uh, the last uh, uh, verse on that topic, masters treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This would be a reflection of this notion of the fact that God is not partial. That from God's point of view, the master, who's regarded as a master from the Roman perspective, he also has a master. So from God's point of view, the earthly master is in fact a slave. He's got a heavenly master and he needs to keep that in mind. All right. All right, let's... That was the first verse of chapter 4. All right, let's continue in chapter 4. <clears throat> continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Notice again this <clears throat> issue of thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us. This is what's called intercessory prayer, which is you pray to God um, for the sake of someone else on behalf of someone else, for the benefit of someone else, rather than your own benefit or your own sake. And it's a, it's a prominent theme in Paul. It's a prominent theme in the Bible. It's Old and New Testament, the notion of intercessory prayer. Um, <clears throat> Paul certainly does it for his churches, uh, but here he's asking them to do it for him. But if you could look at Paul's you know, if you look at Ephesians and Colossians and Philippians, you can see Paul praying in intercessory fashion for the recipients of the letter, that is the church. But he also asks them to pray for him. Okay. Notwithstanding in some cases that you know, they have some problems, but he still wants their prayers. So here he's, he's seeking their prayer um, for us. And so it's not just Paul, it's but those in his company right, with him in his ministry, that God may open to us, again, notice it's plural, a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. Now, so, um, you know, uh, Paul's always looking for opportunities uh, to make the Christian message known to declare the, the mystery of Christ. And then he says, on account of which I'm in prison. And we don't always know sort of exactly what caused a particular imprisonment. Paul was in jail more than once. As I mentioned, in 2 Corinthians 11, he talks about many imprisonments. And scholars, to be honest, have to do some speculating, sometimes about well, which imprisonment goes with which letter, those kind of things. Um, <clears throat> but... Um, there's no question about the fact that uh, the reason Paul is a, regarded as a criminal and he's in jail is because of his activity on behalf of Christ. 
okay, the message of Christ. And we have a narrative about that in the book of Acts, right? Um, and you just you look at the missionary, uh, especially the second missionary journey, and you know you begin to see it, especially in the second missionary journey, where Paul is thrown into jail. But then the big one in Acts is really not on one of the classic three missionary journeys, but it's at the end of the third one when you sort of think it's over, uh, and that's when he gets back to uh, Jerusalem, when all the three journeys are over. And then he shows up, and he's been asked to participate in a Nazarite vow at the temple. This is Acts 21. And some Jewish non-believers show up and accuse him of bringing a Gentile into the area that the Gentiles are not per permitted to, be, uh, to go. And so that initiates some legal proceedings against Paul. He's arrested. Um, the threat to his life was so great he has to be transported up to Caesarea Maritima and finally makes his way to Rome. Um, but even that, and he was up there two years. According to Acts, he was at Caesarea Maritima two years. Um, but once again, it, all this is related to his, his uh, preaching of the gospel. But what he's praying for, what he seeks their uh, intercession about, according to verse 4, is that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. This is, this is insightful. I mean, Paul has been doing this for some years, right? This is toward the end of his life. He was converted somewhere in the, you know, mid-30s. That'd be the late 30s, third decade, the first century. And so here we are, you know, at least three decades later, two or three decades later, and he says he needs divine intervention. He needs the, God's response to prayer to make it clear how he ought to speak in the presentation of the mystery of Christ. Isn't that interesting? I mean, no telling how many sermons he's preached. No, many, no telling how many times he's sort of talked to co-workers about these things. And he still wants clarity from God about how to do it right in this circumstance. One of the things I think that should help us see is that there's not just a single template where you say, okay, this is the gospel, you know, and this is how we're going to give it to everybody, and if they don't take it, too bad for them, you know. Just it's, it's this way or no way. And sometimes the church has done that, you know, sort of this is the pattern, this is how you do it. And they just sort of lay out these, these points, and this, this is the gospel. And um, I think Paul is understanding that you, you know, it's not always that way. Now, he's not trying to change the gospel. It's still about the mystery of Christ. Um, but he still wants, you know, divine intervention on how to make it clear, you know, um, how he ought to speak. Because uh, he's in different contexts. Uh, I can guarantee you, if you're in a Roman jail and you're trying to speak, you know, to a Roman soldier or fellow prisoners, it probably shouldn't be the same sermon you'd use in a synagogue where people know, you know, the law of Moses and they know these kind of things. They know information, basic information about the covenant with David and the Mosaic Law, and they know who Abraham is, and all these parts of the Old Testament. Chances are a Roman soldiers not conversant with all of that. So, you know, Paul's, Paul wants help. And then just the fact that it, it's always good to seek God's, you know, intervention, because um, if, even if the message was identical every time, the heart of the people we're talking to is not the same. And we should just seek God's, God's help and God's assistance as we present the message to other people. And that's, that's what Paul is doing. Then he says in verse 5, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Outsiders, of course, would be non-Christians. And, and just like Jesus and just like Israel, uh, Paul understands that there are insiders and there are outsiders. There are people who are part of God's people, 
people who are part of the elect, the saved, the different ways to talk about that, the church, and there are people who are not. Okay? And so uh, it takes wisdom to know how to um, present yourself as well as present God's message to those because they don't have your categories, they don't have your assumptions. Like I said, they don't know the Bible stories. And increasingly, there's no telling what they think about Christianity. There's no telling what they think about the message that the church has. Um, no telling what they think about um, Christian values on different topics. Maybe they understand it right. Maybe they don't. So, um, and certainly in the early the period of the early church, there was a lot of, of uh, you know, misunderstanding and uh, rumors and distortions going on in the culture against the church. And so Paul is talking about wisdom toward those on the outside. Making the best use of the time, let your speech always be gracious. Okay, always be gracious, which is not always easy to do. Seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Um, and as Christianity began to sort of move more and more away from Judea and be out in the larger world, um, it became more and more necessary to sort of answer people in the sense of explaining what this is about. It's, it's hard for us to imagine what it was like to say to people that you did not believe in their religion. Um, let me just take a second to sort of explain how this worked. If you're, if just imagine a timeline, and so here we are in the first century, and just look back, just look backwards on the timeline, as far back as there is recorded history, if you're a Greek person or a Roman person, or from Egypt or wherever, and you're just imagining as far back as you can go on a timeline, okay, all that's ever existed are people, you know, the, the reputable people, the smart people who believed in the gods, who believed in Zeus or Athena or Jupiter or whatever. Or if it was in Egypt, those Egyptian gods. And so everybody knows that those gods are real because everybody who is smart believes in them and always has. All the great philosophers and the great artists, the people that wrote all the great literature, and all the great architects and scientists and military leaders and statesmen and politicians, everybody has believed in the gods, except a little group called the Jews. And here you come along and say, you don't believe in them. I mean... That's just, that's shocking. It's offensive because it's not that you just say, I don't believe in them. You say, they don't exist. And so everything, all of these cultural beliefs are about are just a fabrication of yours. And if you really knew, if you're a pagan, if you really knew what the Christians believed, you would know that they believed that they were associated with the devil that they were associated with demons, all these wonderful gods and goddesses you worship. And so um, it takes a lot of wisdom to know how to have a conversation with people, you know, who are from this other perspective, which is the majority perspective. I mean, if you were sort of a monotheist in Paul's day and age, it made you a really, really strange person. Besides the strangeness of believing what Christians believed about this guy crucified in Judea, everything they believed about him, and here he was killed by crucifixion. So there are just all these marks against you for believing ridiculously stupid things. So it takes some wisdom and guidance to know how to talk about all that. You know, to, to the to the big world out there. Then we get to verse 7 following. 
He mentions Tychicus, a man named Tychicus, who's also mentioned in Ephesians. He will tell you about all my activities. He's a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, so that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And so Paul is not going to use this letter, nor the same Tychicus also takes a, uh, the letter to the Ephesians to them. Um, Paul is not going to take up the space of these letters to sort of give the personal matters going on with his life or ministry. He wants to focus much more on this revelation of God's truth and how to apply that to church problems, issues that are going on in the lives of the recipients of the letter. And so, but he says, I know you're concerned about me. I'm concerned about you. So this guy named Tychicus, right? He's going to fill you in on what's happening. And so is a guy named Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, is one of you. And they will tell you all of everything that's taken place here. Then there's Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner. So he's in prison with me. So he's a criminal. He greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, we know them from Acts. And you remember... There was a big blow-up between Paul and John, Mark, and Barnabas, so big that they couldn't go on the second missionary journey together. Remember that? They went on the first journey. Everybody was buddies with each other, except John, Mark, remember, decided not to really finish the journey. And so when it was time for the second journey, Paul says, wait a minute, Mark wouldn't finish the journey with us. I don't want him going on the second one. We can't count on the guy. And Barnabas said, well, pfft, I'm going with him. And so they couldn't do the second journey together. This isn't the first part of Acts 16. And so, but they're back together. You know, the peace of Christ and forgiveness brought everybody back together. There's a guy named Jesus who's also called Justice. And these are the men who are the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. So these are the Jewish Christians who are with Paul. When it says men of circumcision, that's what that means. Then there's Epaphras, verse 12, who is one of you. So one of you means that Epaphras is from Colossae. And I presume Alan Black talked to you when you were looking at chapter 2, when Paul mentioned that the readership, the people who get this letter, Paul tells them they've never seen his face. So Paul did not personally establish the church at Colossae. Epaphras did. Okay, Epaphras was someone sent out by Paul to establish the church at Colossae because he was a sort of a local boy. He, he was, he was a, a native of that region, and Paul wasn't. And so Epaphras is one of them. Okay, servant of Christ, he greets you. Okay, so he's now back with Paul. Struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. So here are three cities that are Christian cities, quote-unquote. I mean, they're full of pagans and they're part of the cities of the Roman Empire. But there are three cities where there's a church. Okay? And they're in a region called the Lycus, L-Y-C-U-S, Lycus Valley. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. We think this is Luke who wrote the Gospel of Luke and Book of Acts. Okay, Demas, who's a man who later deserts Paul. So this ends up with just various uh, Christians, you know. Uh, we don't know much about any of them. Uh, verse 15, give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea. That's one of those three towns. Colossae, Laodicea, Hierapolis. And to Nympha. This is a Christian sister. This is a woman, and to the church in her house. If you're looking at a King James, they want Nympha to be a man. Okay, but We all now know that Nympha's a woman. This is a church in her house, not a church in his house. This would be like um, you know, Lydia having the church in her house. So nothing strange out of, out of the ordinary here. And when this, uh, verse 16 is important, and when this letter has been read among you, that is the letter to the Colossians has been read among the Colossian church, have it read in the church of the Laodiceans. So Paul wants this letter that he has just written to the Colossians to be copied 
and sent over to this other congregation so they can benefit from it. And see to it that you also read the letter I wrote to them, which is called Paul's letters to the letter to the Laodiceans. It's not in our Bible, is it? So we don't have that letter. Okay? We don't have Paul's letter to the church of Laodicea. Do we have a letter from anybody in the New Testament to the church of Laodicea? Yeah, book of Revelation. We have one from Jesus to the church of Laodicea, but not from Paul. Okay, Based on Jesus' letter, they're not doing very well in John's day. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. He says something similar to that, by the way, at the end of Galatians. Remember my chains. This is one of those prison epistles I mentioned to you. This is one of the four prison epistles. Grace be with you. Okay, our time is about up. Anybody got a quick question or a question that has a quick answer? A better way to say it. Yes. 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 And if you look at the uh, imprisonment that he's under when he goes to Rome from Caesarea Maritima. Yeah. On the ship, you know, in Acts 27. You know, that whole chapter is about the sea journey to get him over there. Um, he seems to have Christian friends with him that are not technically under arrest, but they're just sort of help serve him while he's arrested. Because there was no, I mean, the, the Roman state didn't take care of you in jail. You're sort of on your own. <laughs> you better have some friends that'll help you, you know, and sort of minister to you. They're not going to provide you the kind of sort of luxury items we do today to prisoners. And in other countries in the world today, by the way, their governments don't always feed them and stuff like that. It's, you better have some family on the outside that will come see you and bring you stuff. Yeah. Okay. Thank you all so much.